Welcome, everyone, to Spiral Leadership Radio. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm good, Arlia. How are you this fine, rainy morning? I'm good. I'm good. I, I love the rain. It's It feels so good to have fall, or at least the first version of fall here in the South, arrive. I love it. And I think this year, especially a change of season, was in order. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It does. It really helps. It really helps. What are you drinking this morning? Um, an espresso in my Yo Regelt Good Morning mug. Yo Regelt is Good Morning in Hungarian. Oh, okay. Because I'm like, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Have you so, Have you always had that mug? Um, I think for maybe five years, I bought okay. it at the Atlanta Hungarian Festival several years ago. Because I've never seen it. No, and it never made its way to any office that we've shared mm. because I guard it with my life. Now, now, how's your Hungarian? Kicsit beszélek magyarul. I speak a little Hungarian. <laughs> That's awesome. And it, it comes out in restaurants, even in non-Hungarian restaurants, like restaurants in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'll just automatically shift to Hungarian when I want another glass of wine or a cup of coffee. Because that's what you knew how to say in Hungarian. (laughs) A recent trip to D.C. Well, by recent, I mean pre-COVID. So not really recent. We had an actual Hungarian waiter. And I could tell from his accent. He was a Hungarian speaker. So I politely asked him if he spoke Hungarian. And he was thrilled to death. We spoke Hungarian the rest of the meal. Well, in one and two word phrases. Yeah. And it's just... uh, I always find that a lot of fun when I can reconnect with somebody from Hungary. Yeah, that's cool. And when were you there? Oh, four to oh seven in my roaring 20s. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, it was a life-changing experience. And I think it's formed, in some ways, it's formed a lot of what I've done since in terms of travel, in terms of the way I teach, in terms of the way I view diversity. Uh, this was an international school with kids from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the fun side, you know, it brings me the Yo Regelt mug. I could sing a Yo Regelt song, but I don't want our listeners to turn off quite yet. <laughs> maybe another day. Okay. Yeah, well, maybe we'll have a, a musical edition at some point. Yeah. We'll we'll save that for for another special episode. You know, we both now own pianos. We could do like this dual piano thing. Totally, as long as I get to play the right hand. <laughs> yeah, I. So you know this. I got a piano recently for the first time in thirty years, and it was pretty disheartening when I first sat down to play. It's like I can't remember what any of these bass notes are in the in the bass clef. But you know what? After a couple of months, it just kind of clicked again. It like it wasn't. It it's not the struggle anymore. I'm kind of back to where I was, which is still a struggle, <laughs> but not <laughs> as bad as it was. Like, like, I, like, I've pr- been practicing this one piece. You know those classic Italian aria songbooks. Mm-hmm. That all the well, there was. I I okay. Well, here's here's my story. I. I don't have any music left. If I do, I don't know where it is from college, piano music. So I went in the garage and rummaged around and I found my my father had music. My mother had music. And 
my mother had some of my grandparents' music. Oh, wow. So my mother, my grandmother was in, she went to Westminster for like a semester or two or a year or two. And they were both vocalists and they always sang at home. They even recorded some 78s back in the, I guess that would be the 40s. Oh, wow. Of, the, of their family singing and playing. Isn't that cool? So all that's gone, but there was still some sheet music. And so there's this sheet music from like the 20s and the 30s and actually sheet music from before they got married. So my grandmother's maiden name and some of it, the music was dated like 1896 and 1904. And I was like, this is music nobody's heard of and nobody probably wants to hear again, but it's great to have. So anyway, I pulled out, you know, one of those books of classic Italian arias, every singer learns. And there's, you know, there's some great, great pieces in there to play on piano. So what's it like to reconnect with music in that way? Oh, it's very cool. It's very cool. And the first, when I first sat down at this piano, all I had were my dad's hymnals. And that was fine. That was a trip down memory lane. But um, yeah, reconnecting with with your grandmother through her sheet music is very cool. When I haven't had, she was, she had passed by the time I was 11 or 12. So, so that was, uh, you know, I had heard the stories of, you know, how, what, how, how she was a musician and what they did. So yeah, that's very cool. It's neat. And it's reminding me of, you know, my piano was actually originally my great grandmother's and then my grandparents had it. And then it skipped to me uh, when my grandparents were downsizing and I was sort of living on my own as a very young adult at that time. And I got a lot of that sheet music too. And some of it had even been my mother's. So I'll open a, a book of classic repertoire for kids mm-hmm. and there'll be a handwritten date, you know, March, whatever, 1962, you know, and that's of course when that music got assigned. Um, oh. And I, you know, I just, I love that. And I'll come across music of mine or my brothers and it's just fun to have that little memory of when the piano teacher wrote down when we were supposedly practicing this piece. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat visceral memory. Yeah. My piano teacher had a little, one of those little spiral notepads. Mm -hmm. She'd write her instructions and I'd take them home and promptly ignore it. Yeah, I, or lose yeah, it. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> I was not a good piano student, which is why I, I did not succeed as a piano, as a piano music major. But yeah, I think you got to practice. Yeah. I'll say I this. Did. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. How did you have lessons? I had lessons uh, through high school, but I was not going to be at Carnegie Hall anytime soon. Yeah, me either. Which is okay. I still love playing. My my claim to fame is I actually did succeed uh, through my um, my audition, my college audition for for to be a student of the artist in residence. Like I may at least cool. made it through my audition. Yeah, and then three weeks later, he's like, mm, "You got to buckle Never down." Never mind. And I said, "No, thank you. Never mind." And the rest is history because now I'm a psychology nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, 
Oh, so what are we talking about today? Do you have anything on your mind? No. <laughs> uh, actually, no. I, I was thinking about our previous conversation where we started to talk about education. Because mm-hmm. since then, I've spoken with uh, several friends of mine who are really struggling with, you know, the immediate and concrete issue of how to educate their children while managing their own work or life and whatever that looks like currently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've just been, you know, listening to these. They're friends of mine. They're contemporaries of mine. So 40s, kind of mid-career, all of these friends happen to be married. Uh, everybody has at least two kids who are in, who are differently aged enough. You might have three different schedules in one household um, oh, yeah. based on who's in person on Thursday versus on Tuesday. Uh, one friend of mine said, you know, Thursday for about four hours is the only time of the entire week I have to myself because of this nutty schedule. We were on the phone when their kids started to come home from school. She said, I'm just going to pretend I'm not home yet. Uh, And we, you know, we laughed. And of course she was really home for her kids, but I'm just hearing more and more uh, basically parents hiding from their children. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. So that's, that's just been on my mind and I'm not in that situation. So it's uh, hard to relate to, but it's, you know, as a former teacher, you know, I'm thinking also of the other end of, you know, would, would I want to be in a physical classroom right now or not? Or, um, you know, how, how would I face that if, if I, or, or even we, if we were still working in person, how would, how would I manage that? How would we manage that? So mm-hmm. I, I just been kind of thinking in general about sort of these immediate ramifications for kids and parents in terms of school. What do you think of the idea of these um, pods, small groups of students, maybe three, four students and the, you know, they basically create their own little pod school. I haven't done a whole lot of reading about it, but I, you know, I understand the concept. It sort of seems to be a happy medium just from what little I know. Uh, are you hearing direct experiences with that in your world? No, no, I'm, I'm watching parents begin to, I know it's happening in California, but I'm beginning to watch in our area, parents starting to look for that solution um, for homeschooling. Cause they, they try a few weeks of homeschooling and then just are tearing their hair out. Um, but I did think about this also, Um, I was in a neighboring town the other day and I noticed two, I think you would call them fast casual restaurants side by side or like at the same intersection and both had closed down and were for sale. And I just had this instant thought of, wouldn't those make great little schoolhouses? You know, like if a dozen kids formed a pod or something that would make a great place for them to meet centrally and work. I, I just, that's what I feel like just in my own 
energy, what like I have no connection to the education system, but energetically, that's what feels like a good solution to me is, is these, um, smaller pods where, you know, maybe kids are, you know, like kind of mimic the old fashioned schoolhouses, which had, I think research has shown has, has had, which research, <laughs> which research has shown, um, benefits everybody. You know, when you put differently abled pe- uh, children in the same classroom, they learn from each other. Um, so that's my two cents. Well, yeah. And I, I think that would be something to explore. And I, you know, I'm partially picking up on your thoughts on the education system and how, you know, if I'm hearing you correctly, you've, you've been saying we're in and do for a revolution. Yeah. And as far as the way we handle education. And I, I think ideas like that are creative. They are adaptive. They're relevant to the current situation where we really can't, in my opinion, we can't have a thousand kids in one building mm-hmm. sharing a cafeteria and a gym. Yeah. I don't think that's a good idea. And and others may disagree with that. Uh, But I also think, you know, the the data is coming out of schools of all ages, including universities, where we are starting to have outbreaks again. So, yeah, I I think if we can, but still offer some in-person learning. You know, I've just found in my own life, if we have one or two people over to the front porch, how much good that does me. Yeah. So I, I think it's worth exploring ideas like that. Yeah. I think the children need in person. They really do. It's, there's so much, there's so many ways of levels of interaction that just don't happen on zoom that you can't see. It's just, it's an intangible, but it's very important. It just reminds me that, um, the whole system, you know, we're trying to retrofit a system that was that was fine or not even fine, but workable in 2019. Right. And, and it's not now. It's not now. Well, and back to your point about Zoom, you know, and I know we've talked even in our previous conversations about Zoom fatigue and how do we set boundaries I read a great article in the Times this week about Martha Stewart and her life during the pandemic. So this is somebody. It's a good thing. She's living a very different life than 99% or more of the country, right? Mm -hmm. She says she, and she knows she's privileged. That's, Mm -hmm. that's the first thing out of her mouth. Also, she will not, do more than three hours on Zoom a day because she knows that that is not sustainable. She's obviously in a position to make that decision for herself. Yeah. At the same time, I thought, well, why are the why are the rest of us, you know, in particular fields glued to this stuff? Yeah. It's not healthy. And I, you know, back to your point about children, of course, um, more screen time is not what anybody would have forecasted or wanted yeah, less absolutely. than a year ago. Yeah, absolutely. I moderated. 
I, I moderated a class, a workshop yesterday that was four hours and we had two 10 minute breaks and it was workable because we had different activities in each section, but it was, it was tough. It was tough. And I, I couldn't do that every day. No, I couldn't. And I, I wouldn't want to. I also think that Martha Stewart's getting by because she has a new line of CBD patois necklaces. So it's basically like those old, like, Neko wafer necklaces that you could yeah. eat, but oh. it's giant gummies oh. made with CBD. And she's literally wearing them around her neck and eating 20 of them a day. So there's Oh, that. my goodness. Just for full disclosure. Okay, I'm trying to imagine that, and that kind of defies imagination. Okay, just practically speaking, don't the gummies, like, get on your clothes and your skin? And I don't think she's wearing them long enough. I think it's just, like, oh my goodness. popping them in, 20 she of them a day. She's been hanging out with Snoop Dogg too long. I think so. <laughs> Have you ever seen their show, their cooking show? No, it's supposed to be really fun, it but is. I've never seen it. I've seen a couple of them. They're pretty funny. They're pretty funny. Good on her. She's Good on her. <laughs> in her, in her, um, the her sunset years. Is that what we we would call it? She's experiencing a renaissance. I think it's a renaissance. I did not realize that she is. I think she's seventy nine. I had no idea. Oh, I was sort goodness. of really I mean, kind of blown away by that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can only hope to be living that kind of life when I'm 79. <laughs> so this, um, this class I moderated yesterday was um, about ethics, ethics in the professional world. Fascinating. Because as I told the, the, presenter you know you and i do leadership development work with all sorts of organizations whether they be nonprofits or for profits or faith based groups and i would say i i told him this i said i you know my partner and i i th- we both consider ourselves to be a very high standards very high ethics very professional but it has never occurred to us to have a code of ethics. Very good point. Or to adopt one or to, as some of these consultants do in this class, they would attach it to their proposals for their potential clients. And his response was, I understand that. He said, 84, he he quoted some statistics that basically 84% of the people who might make ethical mistakes consider themselves of high ethics and high morals. Interesting. And I wonder yeah. why that is. Because my sense is that from listening to him, that people have self-referential morals. So 
sure. in the absence of other information, they feel like, you know, however they, the principles by which they live their life are good and solid and honorable. I think anybody would feel that way about themselves. And as I learned, the difference between morals and ethics is morals are the kind of these overarching ideas that govern your life. And the ethics are the way that plays out in your life, like the way you actually act based on those morals and those principles. But he said, you know, ethics are not, it's not just what, it's not what is the right thing to do. He said in any given situation, there can be three or four different right things to do or three or more different potential ethical conundrums. So it's what do you do? Which decision do you make first? And given a number of choices, which choice do you make? And he, he, have you seen The Good Place? No. I think we've talked about it, but I watched it. They, um, one of the characters is a moral philosopher. So uh, one of the major threads of this show is ethics and morality and, and ethical decision making. So they, they cover the trolley problem hmm. on The Good Place. Have you heard of the yeah. trolley problem? Yeah. And so he, this presenter brought up the trolley problem. It's like, if you've seen The Good Place, you know, you're familiar with this. Um, and, you know, it just it reminded me that just because you're ethical doesn't make ethical decision making easy. And say more about the trolley problem. <clears throat> um, okay, I'm probably going to butcher this, but... Um, Within a, a given set of facts, such as um, you're out walking and you see a trolley on train tracks and um, it's a runaway trolley and you look on the tracks and the, there, there, there's a switch and on one track that it could go down are five people tied to the tracks. And on the other track, there's only one person tied to the tracks. But regardless, either way it goes, it's going to kill somebody. So the question is, what do you do? Do you flip the switch either direction? And most people would say you flip the switch and it heads towards the one person. Well, then, you know, then it gets complicated. What if that person is one a relative of yours? What if the five are are people of the opposite political party. (laughs) It's like, there's so many different permutations of how that could be. And then he said there was another permutation of that where um, it's, it's hurtling down the tracks towards these five people and there's a bridge over the tracks and you go up to the bridge and there's a very large person with a backpack on the bridge and you know if you throw that person off the bridge they will be heavy enough to stop the trolley in time to save the five people would you do it and i said wow that that feels like a totally different question because throwing a switch is somewhat passive in terms of affecting human life but throwing someone off the bridge you know or active pretty yeah pretty active and then one of the participants said well and then what if you understood 
that it would require both of you going off the bridge to stop the trolley. Would you? Yeah. Yeah. So it just raises these what feel like impossible situations. Um, I read years ago the the novel Sophie's Choice, mm-hmm. where a woman has to choose between her two children. And I, that would probably be my first introduction to this impossible decision, which, you know, people are faced with every day. I mean, what life or death situations like that, but also in business and personal work is this kind of decisions that seem impossible to find the right solution to. Or it may be clear, the solution may be clear, but are you willing to to live with the consequences mm-hmm. of making the right choice? So it was very thought-provoking. Yeah, and I, I wonder, in my mind, taking the time and intention of sitting down and crafting a code of ethics, I wonder, and this may be sort of wishful thinking, but I would like to think the very act of doing that, it's it's in your mind, and then a terrible decision like the ones you're describing comes up, and you, you've thought it through on some level, not the exact scenario, mm-hmm. not the exact step, but I you, you sort of almost rehearsed a decision-making process because you've rooted it even into your values, um, which, of course, tie into your morals and ethics. I think that's a great exercise mm-hmm. to do. Did you happen to see one or an example of a code of ethics or what what would one piece of that even say or look like uh yes they had a code of ethics that this particular group was operating by and they were they were simple things such as um i'm not going to to agree to perform work i'm not qualified to do um or you know, I will state clearly, you know, what my parameters are and what my charges are and what my fees are and what my work, my scope of work will be before actually doing it. Things like that. Um, very basic stuff, but if not done, can really lead to some very challenging and sticky situations that, that have legal ramifications, but, but also, you know, relationship ramifications. And I'm thinking of an instance that I won't share names or scenario, but, you know, there was a time I had to essentially fire a client we were working with because of a values clash. And in that instance, we did have a clause in our contract, wasn't a full code of ethics, Mm -hmm. but we had a clause in there that I was able to cite. Mm. We'll have made this decision. It's in direct conflict with who we have said we are. And it it almost took the onus off of me. It mm-hmm. was on this person. It's you did this. Mm-hmm. You made this choice. I'm the one reminding you. So I think even in that one instance, that did have to do with our ethics, morals and values also. Yes. So I I think it's I think it's a fantastic idea. 
And it's a yeah. nice, quiet, rainy day. I've got the rest of the day to work on this <laughs> <laughs> and play the piano. Lofty pursuits. Lofty pursuits. One of the one of the participants mentioned when we were talking about principles about how not just a client relationship, but even you know within an organization, um, agreeing to a set of principles is really important. And that reminded me of what you and I do on a smaller scale is that when, when we're working with people, we set norms before we even get into the work, such as we're all going to turn our cell phones off or we're going to. Um, yeah, we're going to allow you to take care of your own needs, whatever right. that looks like. And we respect each other's space to talk and share. Um, and we respect each other's um, choice to share to their level of comfort, things like that. And so we've definitely been practicing that on a, on one level. And so this takes it to a, a whole new level about, you know, when you, when you're in collaboration, what, what are the principles guiding you and grounding you and helping keep everybody, you know, together in a, going the same direction, hopefully. Absolutely. And to me, describing these behaviors as a code of ethics is more overarching than a company handbook, which is sort of, that's from the stance of HR. It's also rooted in the company's values, but a lot of it is boilerplate. A lot of it comes from the state law governing mm -hmm. your organization. And then the norms are great. That's sort of group specific. But I, I love this overarching umbrella. This is how we're going to interact with each other as partners in the business, as facilitators with the group. Mm -hmm. I really love that. And I wonder what the percentage I thought you were going to quote a statistic that 84% of consultancies do not have a code of ethics. And I wouldn't be surprised. I'm oh, totally a, speculating, but that I'm sure probably, it's at least that high. That would probably be accurate. Yeah except for this group. They've got it. Yeah, they've got it. And I, I think that's a worthy endeavor. Well, one of the points the the presenter made was that, you know, ethics, when people write codes of ethics, they don't even address societal norms because that's kind of an assumption that they're, they're kind of out there holding, holding stuff together. But actually, that's one of the things kind of breaking down now is like, you know, this um, very tenuous arrangement that we have of, of agreed to social values is shifting. And that's that's scary. So I was thinking, I yeah, I think the more we can spell out how we're going to approach each other and respect each other, the better was going to ask if you heard any any thoughts about what happens when those when that code is broken what are the ramifications or in your mind what what do you do with that well it, i i'm thinking about the case studies they shared and it just creates a mess a huge mess where um i don't know it's pretty difficult to clean up from and I think you and I have seen that that um, it it can frequently just destroy a relationship 
like with that client, I mean, that, that relationship was done. That was done. It was, it was so clear cut. It was easy to sever, Mm -hmm. but the relationship wasn't salvageable. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking, I wonder there, you know, in, in my idealism, I think yours too. I think we share that. Um, when we're working with people, we want the best, we hope for the best. I wonder if there wouldn't be ways to build in some um, sort of TLC around that. You know, I noticed you blank, blank, blank. Well, what what are we going to do here? You know, I would like to think there'd be room for discussion before it gets to the, the point of no return and you have to sever. Well, I think that's where the, the definitely those code of ethics come in is, is what are the remedies for um, those types of situations? You can't predict every situation, but you could at least lay out some guidelines, right? Like group problem solving methods, which I think would also work in an ethical sense. Yeah, I'm thinking of, of some of the ones we use. Yeah. On, you know, reflecting on a on a process in a very disciplined way where everybody gets to share their thoughts, their feelings, their assumptions, and then generalize their learning, maybe some nonviolent communication, which Mm -hmm. is very oriented towards this is the, this is my reaction to what you did or said Mm -hmm. uh, in a, in a sort of clear and calm way. Mm -hmm. I think that would be the place to start. Yeah, that, absolutely. Thanks for reminding me of what we do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've um, had my yoga gel mug of coffee. That's right. Yeah, and as you're saying that, I can imagine that doing so would might not solve the issue, but it would definitely bring everybody into an agreement about what is and hopefully create some awareness about what the next steps are. I like those processes because they are very malleable um, and they do bring a lot of um, information to the table that was previously unknown. And that's really important in, in any type of ethical situation like that to understand not just what happened, but with as much compassion as possible, understand why that person acted that way. And for what, you know, I'm, I was reminded yesterday when he was talking that, no one ever does anything they, okay, they might do things they know are wrong legally, Mm -hmm. but there are an infinite number of justifications internally for them because, see if I can say this the way it's in my head, Um, that's the only course of action that they see to get the outcome that they need. So if someone steals a loaf of bread because they're hungry, if they're hungry, that's the solution they see. And they're going to ignore the legalities of it in order to meet their needs. If that's the only course of action they see, which is why you can't ever fully step into someone else's experience because you don't know what belief system is driving their decisions. So someone who's making some very unethical decisions, let's say, Oh, for instance, huge conflicts of interest in with their business dealings and their professional role. They've got some overarching 
value inside of them that makes that okay for them. And, you know, societally and legally, it could be very much, you know, counter to every, all of those guidelines. And then it, 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 then it's up to the, you know, that person's colleagues or the society to say, no, that you can't do that. That's not legal. And that's not fair to everybody else. Um, but I start there. Mm-hmm. I start there with there's something in that person's consciousness that is allowing them to make that okay, which is a value I don't share. And so I think that type of process would would get to the heart of, so where is this coming from? And, and sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes it's so egregious, it doesn't matter why they did it. But I think sometimes in the more subtle ethical situations in business, it it has bearing. And then, uh, you know, I, I'm also thinking about sort of, you know, what, what I'm envisioning in these codes of ethics would, are, are, are a bit lofty, uh, uh, you know, they're, um, we, we're aspiring, they're aspirational. Mm-hmm. And it, they're, they're also real and tangible. And I'm sort of laughing and recalling a, um, a handbook of a place where I was doing some work that was so litigious mm. and anal in spelling out every last rule and detail that it was such a turnoff. I couldn't stop talking about it. And I, I finally shared my reflections with some, uh, somebody in the, maybe in the business world who said, Oh, don't ever read the handbook. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it, it, it made me, you know, I shouldn't say it made me mad. I allowed it to to really incense me because it was insulting mm-hmm. um, about controlling every last behavior for no good reason. There were not values behind these rules that I could see. And I, I did, I spoke to somebody else who actually worked in the same system and said, oh yeah, that handbook is terrible. Uh, we keep trying to get that reworked. So I think it's just, I know we're spending a lot of time talking about these business documents, but they're really crucial in in setting out these guiding principles. And mm-hmm. it can go the other way too. I don't want to be told what color shirt I have to wear on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't matter anymore because nobody sees me, but in those days, they would have seen me on a Wednesday. I have a couple of thoughts. I keep thinking of the phrase, you can't legislate morality. You can't, you know, everybody comes from their own perspective. So in the instance of people coming from multiple faith traditions, um, if they can agree on just a principle, be kind to each other. It um, doesn't really matter how they got there. If that's a guiding principle, then that really is um, useful for for the group as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I agree. You're not going to legislate morality. You can legislate behavior. With, exactly. You know, pretty well. And unfortunately, we do it a little too well in this country um, with our prison population that is just bursting at the seams. But 
maybe that's another entire episode. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, that that would be a different conversation. I think I think so, but it's it's tied in. What are our guiding principles? Thank you, Mark, for such a thought-provoking conversation. And thank you, everyone, for being here with us. Um, This has been Spiral Leadership Radio. We'd appreciate it if you'd follow us on all the major podcast platforms, wherever you listen, like and subscribe and share and send us your comments. We'd love to hear what you think. Thank you so much for being here with us. We will see you again next time on Spiral Leadership Radio.